Beloved listeners, a couple of weeks ago, a lifelong friend of mine, Shirley Shackleton, died, and Shirley was the widow of another old friend of mine in Greg Shackleton, one of the Balabo Five who uh, were murdered by the Indonesians in East Timor. So the story that follows is of uh, some personal significance for me. You might not think that a heavy tome of 912 pages of detailed military history about our intervention in the East Timor crisis in 1999 would be controversial, but it is. Partly because of what's not been said about the book, e.g. there's been no launch from the Australian War Memorial, which commissioned it, and partly because of its finding that Australia's intervention in East Timor was not as noble as some would like us to think. The title is Born of Fire and Ash, and it's by Australia's official military historian, Craig Stockings. There are claims that the government wants it to go away and that there have been attempts at censorship. Well, Craig is uh, undaunted by this, and I'm delighted that he's joining me from Canberra. Uh, Craig, first of all, right up front, you're getting the first Koala Stamp Award for the new year with gum leaf clusters. That's for someone who's done something absolutely marvellous. Now, let's deal with the launch first. The book came out on December the 1st. The uh, Australian War Memorial has reportedly said the launch was delayed because some key people were unavailable. What have you been told about the launch? Well, Philip, thank you to start with for the invitation to uh, speak with you this evening and, uh, and the honour it is to speak to all the listeners as well. Um, it is unusual that, uh, that the official history volumes aren't launched formally. Uh, this is the sixth official history series, as you may know, and, and the volume that I've written is the first one of that, uh, of that series. Um, I think that's a question best directed to the War Memorial, but I understand that the plan now is there will be a, an event honouring the publication of the book later in the year, though I don't have firm dates yet. But certainly it is an unusual thing, Philip. Now, the Crikey News site has noted there's uh, been no government promotion of it either, despite the fact that, well, effectively they funded it. Yeah, it is funded by Cabinet. The, my appointment is a prime ministerial one. But, Philip, not to worry, you and I are talking about it now, which perhaps is the start of a bit more publicity. OK, now, the censorship claims. Uh, former Senator Rex Patrick has expressed concerns that it took three years for DFAT uh, to agree to the contents of your book and that they were attempting to censor it in that time. You don't see it quite that way, do you? Well, I think the, the, there is an issue there, and you're right, I think, to point it out, Philip, but it's a bit more complex, I think. Let me begin by saying that you may rest assured I would never publish a book that I didn't think was credible or that had been compromised. Better there be no book. There was no intention or willingness to do that. I think that's well understood uh, by stakeholders, and what we've done is produced a book that is credible and truthful in my view. Now... Having said that, as not just myself, but a team of 16 people here, we work in the classified records of various agencies and departments um, and make use of those uh, records that are you know, security classified. 
as a result of that, when we finish our drafts, which are written for the public, there is a process to go through to make those volumes unclassified so that I can send them to a publisher and, and get it published. So there is a role for stakeholders to play in determining that what we've written is indeed unclassified and is no threat to the nation. So the government does have a, a valid need to consider its relations it, it with it, other it countries. Does. Yeah. It does, because we are working in a classified environment. So there is a role to play there and there's a process around that. I think the ambiguity that you're, you're getting to there or hinting at is what is actually um, of a risk to the nation and what is um, perhaps something that the, a, a stakeholder might not want to read or may not want in the public domain. That's not a security classification issue. That's a reputation management issue. So that's, I think, the area of greyness and of negotiation. And it is remarkable, uh, as you've indicated, that a book that took two years for myself and my research assistants, Dr Tom Richardson, to write, took three more years to clear. That's remarkable. Um, but we got there, Philip, and filling in the gaps between there... Um, I think you can sort of guess some of the issues that might be at play. You've talked about some controversies. Um, we've got one volume down, five to go, but we did get there. As you point out, or you have pointed out off air, had you been prepared to compromise uh, with DFAT, the uh, approval would perhaps have taken six weeks rather than three years. <laughs> I dare say I dare say that negotiations would have been a little quicker, but I'm sure that the department and other departments are aware that we can't uh, we can't compromise historical integrity uh, for convenience sake, and that that is a principle that all the official historians would have followed. I'm no different there. If we're going to do this, we need to do it right and in a way the public can trust, or we oughtn't do it at all. My guest is uh, Craig Stockings, Australia's official historian of military operations in Iraq, Afghanistan and East Timor. And he's also professor of history at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. And we're talking about Born of Fire and Ash, Australia's operations in response to the East Timor crisis, 1999 to 2000. OK, before we get to East Timor, I'd like you to remind us what a unique role yours is because apparently no other comparable country has an independent official war historian. Yes, uh, Philip, certainly it's rare in the Anglosphere. If I was doing this job in the United States, for example, I'd work for the Department of Defence, but that's not the Australian tradition. Uh, we have a tradition going back to World War One, uh, more than 100 years, where the government commissions these histories um, and it gives the job to an independent group of people to do. Now, there's power in that. It means I don't answer to a stakeholder in what we write. But there's complications too, because myself and the team, I guess, will always be viewed as outsiders and with a bit of suspicion. So it's, I think it's a very powerful tradition and it's one that needs to be preserved, the independence of the official, Office of the Official Historian. But at the same time, as, uh, as we've sort of alluded to, it comes with its own complications. So I, my appointment comes direct from the Prime Minister, in this case, Mr Turnbull, back in 2015. The project itself is commissioned by a Cabinet um, and that's the, that's where the money comes through. So I work at the War Memorial um, in a secure space, but not for the War Memorial, if that uh, if that sort of makes sense. And the we should point out that you and your team have 
have security clearance so you can access that classified material. Yes, that's right. So the official part of official history, Philip, refers to the fact that we have access to the official record. It doesn't mean that this is the government's story or the story the government wants told or any particular arm of the government wants told. You've talked about a 100-year tradition going back, of course, to uh, C.E.W. Bean and World War I, uh, probably the most famous of you all. Indeed, indeed. And the style of that official history has changed along with the changes in Australian culture and, and expectations. But, but this is the sixth project. So the one I'm in charge of um, takes in the East Timor crisis in 99 and the peacekeeping period out to 2012. We are covering the conflict in Iraq from 2003 to 2011 and Afghanistan from 2001 to 2014 each with their own points of controversy, as I'm sure you'd be aware of. And coming up, there'll be uh, work on the peacekeeping period in East Timor through to 2011. Yes, that's right. So the second Timor volume, the one dealing with peacekeeping period out to 2012, is currently being uh, examined by stakeholder agencies. I hope it's finished soon. And then we'll get into the Middle East. Craig, uh, I'm surprised to read that you regard the East Timor intervention as, and I quote, the most complex politico-strategic challenge Australia has faced since the 1940s and since? Indeed. Um, and I say that for a number of reasons, uh, Philip. Whilst certainly events in the Middle East, we've, we've talked about Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, are really important for the Australians that are deployed there, a few hundred at a time, East Timor is different. It's in our own backyard and it involves our most important northern strategic neighbour in Indonesia. If East Timor goes wrong, which was a valid fear at the time, and we end up in a shooting match with the Indonesians, then there are significant national and strategic implications, much more than um, losing or even being involved in combat or losing people in places like Afghanistan, which is of the highest importance to those involved in their families, but the scale of strategic risk to the nation is not the same. That, that's why I make that type of claim, Philip. And it's also the first time Australia has led multinational forces and not participated as a, as a tag-along. Very much so, and not a small number of troops either, about 5,500 out of a force of close to 12,000, all under an Australian commander, uh, we had not done this before, and all with an Australian Defence Force, I think even those veterans would agree, that was more of a peacetime military than one ready for such a deployment. If DFAT were to write their own account, uh, Craig, it would be uh, different to yours. Uh, well, they have, DFAT has produced a volume on the 99 crisis. I think it's entitled East Timor and Australian Policy Challenge. And, um, and yes, there are significant divergences between the two. They pretty much describe us in a saviour role, don't they? I'm not sure that's, that's fair of that volume, but I think there is a strong public narrative, Philip, which, is, which was certainly fostered at the time. Um, and there's certainly been lots of capital being made of this Australian responsibility to protect and to save East Timor from the violence that's being perpetrated which to an extent is certainly true, and veterans of 99 have got much to be proud of. They did assist these Timorese in an hour of need. I think the interesting point, though, and the point of some difficulty is that end result, that is 
a very large Australian Defence Force deployment to East Timor was the precise opposite of what government policy was trying to achieve throughout the period, which was to keep East Timor as part of Indonesia. And I, th- I, th- I think that's one of the principal reasons I've given you the koala stamp, because uh, <laughs> you point out, you emphasise that Australia tried not to be involved in East Timor. This is just, this is just historical truth, Philip. Now, there are logical, strategic reasons for that policy. Um, It's just that a lot of Australians don't agree with it and at the time didn't agree with it. I think we had 40,000 people protesting in March in the post-Vietnam generation to deploy the ADF, which was remarkable. So what we had here is a, a divergence between public policy and public wishes. And whenever that occurs in my US historian, invariably that comes crashing back down. There was an attitude, I know, uh, with uh, the odd Prime Minister that we didn't want a Balkans on our doorstep. Which, which is, in the context of the Asian financial crisis and trouble spots across Indonesia, uh, that is a point of policy view. Uh, why would we want another small, uh, possibly dependent state to the north? Uh, which is, as I say, a very real politic and non-sentimental way to look at things. Of course, on the other hand, there are groups of Australians who are more interested in human rights and what was being done to the Timorese and in whose name, who might not and certainly didn't, perhaps now don't, agree with that policy position. It has its logic. It just doesn't align to large part of what the uh, what the public expects, in my view. In the end, the reason there were not a lot of deaths in the official operations of Australia in East Timor, was that there'd been an agreement from Indonesia not to attack officially. Yes, I'm not sure if agreement's the word, but let's be clear here. The violence in East Timor, which which was described as being the result of militia activities or these militia groups, uh, violence perpetrated against East Timorese, or that there were, in a worst case, some rogue elements of the Indonesian military being in, conducting this violence is, is not true, never was true. The violence in East Timor was a product of Indonesian policy. The TNI, or the Indonesian Armed Forces at ABRI at the time, were very much involved in the militias. There are no militias without ABRI involvement. So It's important, so that, it's important to recognise, as you point out, that it was in Indonesia's interest to keep Australia, the US, etc., and the IMF happy. Yeah, and some of the some of the pressures that, um, as as we, if we talk about Timor-Leste, we'll talk about that resulted in a in Australian deployment come from places like the IMF and the Americans as much or more than they do from Canberra. There is a policy tipping point in Australia where that policy I've described of keeping East Timor as part of the Unitary Republic. Is, uh, is eclipsed by events and by public opinion. And as soon as that tipping point's reached, then we're all in. And certainly those, as I said, who end up deploying to the team will do a marvellous job. Um, but I think it's a, it would be a little bit cynical to describe the whole process as Australia's desperation to assist the Timorese. You uh, give accounts of the atrocities by the militia, both Indonesian and so-called rogue soldiers, and Timorese who were paid. Yeah, um, this this is the, one of the toughest part of researching and writing a book like this is is because um, the events in team that occur in East Timor, particularly after the ballot where the Timorese choose independence, are quite horrific and quite horrendous. And I've got to say, it's actually the bravery of a select number of journalists who stay in the place and get pictures out into our living rooms that help sway 
uh, international opinion, even at the UN. Uh, had this been swept under the carpet, had we been not, not been able to see what was going on, had there been no journos, I'm not sure the outcome would have been the same. So kudos to those who did hang around and do that. But yes, the violence was, um, was horrific. People may recall those images of young mothers throwing their babies over the barbed wire into the UN compound and any other number of, uh, of horrific scenes at the time. But certainly not rogue and certainly not random. Late Night Live spent quite a lot of time in uh, East Timor in recent years and I found just talking to the people on the ground was one of the most harrowing experiences of my life because the horror stories are, are endless. And you and your team conducted, what, two and a half thousand interviews, which must have been pretty gruelling. It is. Um, we're not that many for this volume. That's across the project, probably around 400 of, of this volume. Yes, indeed. And this is an experience that wasn't lost on uh, ADF members who were there as well. Uh, it doesn't take long, uh, Philip, for someone on the ground in September 1999 to realise what had gone on, these teamers are telling them, um, and who had done it. And I think one of the, if I was to take away some themes um, of a general veteran experience, one of them would be that there is some discomfort uh, for Australian service people who who quickly become aware and see the horrors on the ground and speak to the team Marines, and then the same day uh, do things like conduct joint patrols with their Indonesian counterparts. And there's some tension there. Uh, that's one, of, along with the being proud of actually helping people, and that's one of the enduring uh, re recollections that comes across to us. You were there yourself, Craig, as a young officer. Yeah, I was a very young officer. I, did, I knew nothing but what was in front of my two eyes at that time, Philip. It certainly didn't help with the history writing, uh, but I was there, um, and I, I do recall some of those scenes. Um, not a very nice state of affairs, and one I'm glad in the end. Uh, was rectified. What's your most vivid memory personally? Uh, I, don't, I hesitate to make it about me, Philip, but I, I think I would answer that. I do recall being in a little village called Mimo, which is close to Maliana on the border, which had been decimated by the militias, who were conducting, there weren't too many people back in the town, but conducting a company aid post, so giving aid or medical aid to the locals, some of whom were returning and did turn up. And I do recall one young Timorese mother sort of distraught running over to us with a baby in her arms asking for help. I couldn't understand the tetum, but certainly the intent was clear. Um, and she was being escorted by some uh, Timorese fellows trying to pull her back, and, and she broke free, came to us anyway. Um, and then sort of presented her baby for asking, you must help the baby. Um, the baby's not well. Um, I recall the little baby being dead uh, with a big lump on its head where one of the militiamen uh, had, um, had, had knocked it um, for whatever reason. Uh, that one stuck with me. It's just being so, sort of a bit powerless, uh, along with the tragedy that had befallen the team where he's there. Were some of the Australian soldiers subsequently uh, suffering from PTSD? I'm not sure. That's the area of the medical aspect is something we didn't delve into. I dare say, in fact, I'm confident in saying, yes, there, there were people carrying some baggage from what they'd seen, uh, but I would hesitate. I'm no expert there and I certainly can't quantify that sort of thing, Philip. Now, it is important to understand, dear listener, that Craig's argument 
is that there was coordinated violence orchestrated by Indonesia. And, of Craig, that's something that some people don't want to hear. It is, but it's not new information, uh, Philip. You could Google the United Nations website and pull up the same reports that we saw that makes that abundantly clear. There's been a number of books written on this topic making it clear. The Indonesians conducted their own trials, including of serving, not serving officers, making this clear. Jakarta signed uh, a document on the Truth and Reconciliation Committee with Dili. Uh, that points this out in granular detail. So none of it's new. I think there's perhaps if there's discomfort, it's the fact that it's been presented to the, to the Australian public um, as a bit of a, a corrective, I, I guess, to what might have been talked about at the time. Maybe that's what's new. A question that I, surprisingly, I don't know the answer to. How many people were deployed? Uh, at, at its peak, just over 5,500 Australian service people. Uh, in addition to that, there were uh, AFP police and a number of DFAT officers and some other people as well. Um, that was in a, a force that was called Interfet, as it went, International Forces East Timor, uh, which got close to 12,000, all under the command of General Cosgrove. There's a quandary, isn't there, about international relations. To what extent should the truth be spoken? Where do ethics fit in? I think that's a one every listener, a question only every listener can answer to themselves. I do find it personally a challenging question. I mean, within the family, we laud selflessness. Uh, within the community, we reward people who give up their time and help others at, their own, at the cost of their own profit. Uh, at a state level, uh, the SES and other volunteers, we laud, we hand out Australia Day honours for this sorts of behaviour. Yet it's it's curious that once we move into the international level or the realm of international relations, it's all bets are off. It's a very realist paradigm and we don't carry those values in. And there, as I said, said before in a different question, there are valid logical reasons for that. I think it's up to the individual to decide where their values lie, though. Craig, has, uh, has Ramos Horta and Shanana Guzman read, the, read your work? I have no idea. Uh, we did interview um, Ramos Horta, um, so he certainly has a voice in the volume. Um, we're never actually able to get an into interview with Zanana Kusmiya, which is a shame. I don't know that they've read it. Uh, perhaps um, with such little publicity, they don't know it's out. Well, he's an old friend of the program, so I, uh, I might give him a call. The next volume will be the peacekeeping years in East Timor, as I said earlier. And I guess DFAT's uh, black texter is currently hovering over that. Uh, that process is underway. I can't comment too much on, on that, Philip. But we'll maintain the same position as we have. There is a role for stakeholders to, to make sure that we haven't crossed the lines of national security. Um, there is a there is room for that negotiation, but we cannot and we will not publish untruths or coffee table books or historically uncredible uh, works. Craig, a, a privilege and an honour to talk to you, and uh, let me reintroduce you to the listener at this late stage. Craig is Australia's official historian of military operations, not only in East Timor but also for Iraq and Afghanistan. His other job is Professor of History at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. He's the author of Born of Fire and Ash, 
Australian operations in response to the East Timor crisis 1999-2000. to It's published by the Australian Law Memorial and the University of New South Wales Press. And let us hope it has the big launch that it deserves. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much, Philip, and to all your kind listeners. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.